trembles at his voice. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. Don't see how great, how great is our God. Age to age he stands, and time is in his hands, beginning and the end. Beginning and the end, the Godhead three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, the Lion and the Lamb, Lion and the Lamb, how great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. Don't see how great, how great is our God. He is name above all names. He is worth. those joining us uh, in person and on camera, God. Lord, you are the name above all names, Lord. We thank you for that, God. We uh, lift you up this morning, Lord, coming into a crazy week for the nation, for our country, for the world, Lord. And God... uh, 
Lord, we honor you this morning as we come into a moment where we're trying to pick a person to lead us, Lord. God, help us to look to you at this time for our country, for our world, Lord. Lord, hope hope we can put our trust in you and not any one human, Lord. Uh, help us to understand that, Father. Help us to know that you're in control at this time, Lord. Amen. of all creation of water earth and sky heavens are your tabernacle glory to the Lord on high God of wonders beyond our galaxy you are holy, holy. The universe declares your majesty. You are holy, holy. Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. celebrate the light and when I stumble in the darkness I will call your name by night God of wonders beyond our galaxy you are holy holy declares your majesty you are holy holy Lord of heaven and earth Lord of heaven and earth hallelujah hallelujah to the Lord of and earth. Hallelujah to the Lord of heaven and earth. Hallelujah to the Lord of heaven and earth. Hallelujah to the Lord of heaven and earth.
of wonders beyond our galaxy. You are holy, holy. The universe declares your majesty. You are holy, holy. God of wonders, God of wonders beyond our galaxy. You are holy. Reveal your heart to me Father, hold me Hold me The universe declares your majesty You are holy Holy
trust Him more. Uh, this next song um, is a new song for all of us, I think. Um, some of us. It's a song I grew up with, and I think it just kind of spoke to me this week as I prepared, um, and just thinking about the election coming up and everything. I know there's a lot of fear and worry around it, it seems like, um, and this song just kind of spoke to me, and uh, just wanted to share it, and hopefully, uh, if you know it, please sing along. no time for fear. This is the time for faith and determination. Don't lose the vision here. Carried away by the motion. Hold on to all that you hide in your heart. There is one thing that has always been true. It holds the world together. God is in control. We believe that His children will not be forsaken. God is in control. We will choose to remember and never be shaken. There is no power above or beside Him, we know. Whoa, God is in control. Whoa, God is in control. History marches on. There is a bottom line. Drawn across the ages, culture can make its plan. Oh, but the line never changes, no matter how the deceptions may fly. There is one thing that has always been true. It will be true forever. God is in control. 
We believe that his children will not be forsaken. God is in control. We will choose to remember and never be shaken. There is no power above or beside him, we know. God is in control. God is in control. He has never. And he has never let you down. Why start to worry now? Why start to worry now? Father, watching over you and me. God, God is in control. We believe that His children will not be forsaken. God is in control. We will choose to remember and never be shaken. There is no power above or beside Him, we know. Oh, God is in control. Oh, God is in control. in control Oh God is in If you're able to kneel with me for prayer, will you do so? Lord, we do acknowledge that you are in control, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and there is no other God besides you, that you are our firm foundation and um, and you cannot be shaken. No matter what's happening around us, you you remain firm and solid. You never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I just pray, Lord, that as we um, as we hear your word this morning, that we would keep our eyes fixed and focused on you, who is the author and perfecter of our faith and the lover of our souls, that, you, that we would be um, willing to throw aside the things that hinder us and hold us back from from all that you have for us. I thank you for Conrad, Lord, and for um, the way that you've been speaking to him this week uh, in regard to the message this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would, um, 
that Lord, as he, uh, as he delivers this word, that he would keep his eyes fixed and focused on you. Lord, that your word would flow through him with boldness and with strength and clarity in his voice. And I do pray, Lord, for a shield of protection around him as he delivers the word this morning and in the week to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name. Thank you, David and Ashley, for those songs, for those prayers, and for those reminders. This morning, we continue a series on the names of Christ that we find in the Scripture. And this one is King of Kings. It comes out of the book of Revelation, but I'm going to spend the morning with you actually in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 27. And I want to greet those of you who are here this morning and those of you who are watching on YouTube or will watch later. Um, We greet you in Jesus' name. You're one of us and we belong to him. The title of the message this morning, although it's King of Kings, as I was listening, reading, praying, the title I've developed as a working title is this, The Homeland We've Forgotten and the goodness of the king of that land. The homeland we've forgotten, and the goodness of the king of that land. I'd like you to read with me, if you would, Mark 1 to 27, if you have your Bibles with you. And as you read this passage, as we read it together, I want to remind us of the context, that Jesus is just beginning his ministry. He's beginning his ministry in a world that is fraught with turmoil. The Roman Empire is now ruling where Jesus and the disciples are living. These disciples he will call in a few moments. The people of God are surrounded by their enemies. They are pushed in upon by their enemies. They are pressed in upon by their enemies. They are doing everything they can in the Pharisaic tradition, the Sadducean tradition, to uphold the word of God, to set clear boundaries, to define who it is, what it means to be the people of God. But they're under tremendous pressure. And they have been praying for centuries for Messiah. They've been praying for centuries for Messiah, and their understanding of the Messiah was not that Messiah would come who would suffer, but a Messiah who would come to take them out of the bondage to Rome. That was really their hope. They had set their hope on this one man, on this Messiah who would come to restore Israel, to redeem Israel, to destroy Rome, to take them from under the thumb of Rome. That's what they thought this man was going to do. But oh, he did something so very different. And this morning, as we ponder this week, I want us to remember um, that what Jesus wants to do may be very different than what we imagine. May be very different for the church, may be very different for the world. And I don't know what that means, but I just know that our hope and our trust is in this Messiah who might just turn the world upside down in ways we had no idea. Because that's what he did 2,000 years ago. Verse 1. 
the beginning of the gospel. And I'm going to give a little commentary as I go through before I sort of launch into more of the message. But the word gospel in the New Testament means the good news of joy. The good news of joy. I'd like you to rest with that for a moment. The good news of joy. And I'd like you to think for a moment. Just take your, if you want to close your eyes, fine. But whatever, take yourself to the place, to a place where you go or have gone where you found sheer joy. That when you were in that place, you just knew it was joy. It was rest, it was peace. Just allow yourself to go to that place for a moment. The gospel was, the gospel is, and the gospel always will be good news of joy. Not good news of fear or bad news of fear, but good news of joy. Joy lies at the heart of the gospel. The good news is the news of joy. And one of the questions for us is why? What is it about the good news? And we'll unpack that today. But what is it about the good news that makes it so much joy? That is the center of it is joy. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, Mark says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And of course, he's referring to John the Baptist, and I'm going to skip down to verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son. Say that with me together. One, two, three. You are my son. My son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. In other words, my son in whom I find joy. Because Jesus had come from the Trinity. Jesus had come from that most joyful space in all of eternity. In that most joyful space where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are postured towards one another. And joy exudes from the Trinity. Joy exudes from God. The gospel is good news because it's the news that comes from heaven where the good news is embedded in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus comes to earth and the Father wants to remind him, you still make me happy. You still bring me joy. You are my son and you bring me joy. And I may have shared this last week, but um, Ezra, I hadn't seen him for a week and he came in the door and he reached out. I thought, you know, he's going to forget who Pappy is. And he reached out his arms and he just wanted to come to me. It was sheer joy. To see Ezra do that. And that's what God is doing to Jesus in this moment. He's reaching out his arms to him and he's saying, Son, I haven't forgotten you. You still bring me joy. And the gospel is good news because when God looks at you, he says to you, You still bring me joy. You still bring me joy. You are my son. You are my daughter. You still bring me joy. At once the Spirit sent him into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the news of joy. 
the good news of God, the news of joy of God, of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in which there is joy radiates from, from Father, Son, and Spirit. The time has come, he says. The time is now. The kingdom of God is near. Now you can imagine with me what the disciples heard and those around them heard. What they heard was Rome is going to be overthrown. But that wasn't at all what Jesus had in mind. We know that Rome was not overthrown in Jesus' lifetime. No, it was something else. This kingdom is something else. The kingdom of which Jesus talks about and the king of which he is the kingdom is something different than what everyone assumed it was going to be. Repent and believe the good news. So time and time again in the book of Mark, this idea in the first chapter comes up. Believe the news of great joy. What did the angels say when they came to the shepherds on the, on the hillside? It's a moment of joy. The good news is joy has come. In the midst of your fear, joy has come. In the midst of your fear, joy will come. In the midst of your fear, joy is here. And as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, he said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired men and followed him. And we could go on and read through the book of Mark, and I'm just going to read the next section, 21 to 27. But it gives us this glimpse into what it means to G for Jesus to be the king and to be the author of joy. What does Jesus bring to the world? He doesn't come as a ruler who overthrows Rome. He comes instead as something else. This is the work Jesus does. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I know, I get it. You're the one who brings joy. You're the one who brings the good news. You're the one who's out to destroy the darkness that my father of hell has established and created, a, and created bondage that people are in. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And then he goes on and on. And all of the first chapter is about the healing power that Jesus has and brings with him to touch individuals' lives and to set them free and to touch your life and my life and to set us free and to give us joy. I did want to note at the beginning of Mark, Mark describes something very clearly. Not only is this gospel good news of joy, but he says his gospel is about Jesus Christ. And that word Christ, Messiah, means anointed one. He is proclaiming up front in his gospel that Christ is the King. That Jesus is the king come from heaven, the son of God, which means anointed one. The son of God, who is the anointed one and the king. This week, if you were listening at all to the podcast I'm writing, recording, 
I interviewed my dear friend, our dear friend, Mike Schwartz, who does not profess any particular faith. He grew up Jewish in a Protestant neighborhood. He would now say probably he's agnostic. Mike has been a good friend for 16 years. I knew him before that at Penn State. But one of the questions that Mike has asked me numerous times over the years, to which I have not had a good answer, because of my own misunderstanding of the good news of joy, Mike has asked me this time and again, and he's asked me it as a very sincere question. How can one believe in a God or desire to know a God who demands that we worship Him, who demands that we glorify Him, who demands that we praise Him, who demands that we obey Him? What, what kind of God is this? What kind of God is so arrogant that He would demand that we worship, glorify, praise, obey Him? What kind of God is so insecure that he needs these people to bow down before him and pay him homage? What's, what kind of God is this? I can only assume that my friend has picked this idea up from all of us in the church, or many of us, who in trying to share the word, as Mike puts it, have shared a word that is, has twisted the good news has not been good news. And I, I have not had an answer for Mike. Because I have to say, I've lived too with the assumption that somehow God demanded obedience, yes, worship, praise, glory. That, it, that these were kind of like dues we paid to him. They were like, kind of like penance for our sins. It was kind of like homage that we gave to God. What I have come increasingly to believe, however, that this message, that God demands worship, praise, glory, homage, and honor, and that we'll get zapped if we don't do it, is not the good news that Mark's talking about or the gospel is talking about. That, it's, that that is not the good news of joy that the New Testament is overflowing with and that Jesus overflows with. I don't see it in the gospels. This is not how Jesus presented the good news to those who wanted most to hear it. It's not how he presented the good news to this demon-possessed man. It's not how he presented the good news to those who needed it most in need of healing. He doesn't say, get down first and bow before me, and then I'll take care of you. He meets these people right where they're at and with the needs they have. He does this perhaps to the demons. We see that. He does this to the Pharisees, to those who already thought they were righteous, but he doesn't ever do it to those who so desperately needed the good news of joy. Instead, what we see is a Jesus, a king, who himself comes serving, who himself comes giving, and who himself goes to the cross and dies on our behalf. This is not to say that those of us who love Jesus don't or won't bow down to him or praise him or worship him or honor him. Oh, we do and we will, but because we want to. We do not love God because God forces us to do so. He is, there's nothing in Scripture that suggests God forces us to make a choice to love him before we're saved or after we're saved. He... he, he from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, he gave Adam and Eve a choice to love him or not to love him. That's what God 
That is so many ways is what separates the God we serve from the God of so many other religions who make demands. And I'll mention that in a moment. But this God comes to us and woos us into his loving arms. He romances us into his arms. He woos us towards him into his love and into his joy. And so we worship because we so love him. We worship because we so intimately come to have known who he is and his love towards us because we hear him say to us, son, you daughter, you bring me joy. How can we not worship that God? We do so because we have seen his beauty and we have experienced the freedom and the good news. We have been set free to experience the good news of joy and and grace and acceptance that he gives to us. And so we worship, amen? That's why we worship. We worship because he woos us into his presence with his love. When I was a child, my father tended to demand my obedience. And I knew that refusing to do so would lead to pretty severe punishment at times. Most of the years at home, I tended to do what my father wanted me to do out of fear of the consequences if I would not. Over the years, as I've worked in my own internal, emotional, and spiritual work, Dad and I have had many conversations about what it was like to be his son. How little joy I sensed from him about who I was. I could give numerous examples, and he and I have talked about them. One of them that comes to mind is uh, I built a birdhouse for him uh, as a kid for his birthday, and it sat on the shelf for, for years. It did not bring my father joy. That was painful. Dad and I have had many conversations, and he's expressed so much regret that that was the kind of father he was. He said things like, I didn't understand you. I didn't know how sensitive you were. I didn't realize that I needed to do those. I didn't need to do those things to get you to obey me. We've had wonderful conversations. I love my dad. We go out to breakfast together. A few weeks ago, as we visited my parents, he just expressed great appreciation for what he's heard over the last five months in the podcast I've done. He said, son, I've learned more about you in five months than I ever knew about you in 18 years. I didn't know you. And what I heard from my dad was, you are bringing me joy. Now I ask ask you, you tell me, which father have I come to love most deeply? Which father have I come to love most deeply? The father I came to love, the father I grew up with, who I was afraid of? Who sometimes I jumped when he got near me because I was afraid of the certain consequences? No. The father who has loved me as I am. The father who said, I'm sorry. The father has turned to me. The father has not demanded my obedience, but who says, my son, you bring me joy. Now think with me about Jesus for a moment. Did he demand obedience on the cross? Or did he say, I'm sorry, though he had nothing to be sorry for? Of course it was the latter. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. It was in his way an expression of regret that they didn't get it, that they didn't understand the joy that he had to give to them. They didn't understand the joy that he brought to them. The one who loved them, created them, who at any moment would embrace them, who in his dying had forgiven them, 
who had come to bring them the good news at the beginning of Mark chapter 1, and they had missed it. Because they were looking for something else. They were looking for someone who would free them from Rome. You see, we've gotten it so turned around. We assume that we can corral and coerce people into, into the kingdom by telling them that God demands their obedience, that God will send them to hell if they don't receive Christ. And I'm not saying there's not a hell. I believe there is. But that's not the starting point of the good news. The starting point of the good news is the joy that God brings to us when we turn to him. In this culture, in any culture for that matter, the message of demanding obedience and worship and praise is not going to be attractive to nearly anyone. And secondly, to those who do respond, they're going to live their lives, most of their lives, out of fear of that being they've given themselves to. Fear, John says, does not create intimacy. The writer in Epistle of 1 John says, fear casts out love. There's no place for fear and love with God or with one another. Fear does not bring about our love and intimacy. It's only acceptance that brings about love and intimacy. Shame does not bring about love and intimacy. One of the things I'm doing increasingly in my classroom is how I'm incredibly aware that my students are filled with shame. They, they come into the classroom, and, and so often they'll apologize. Oh, I, I, I'm sorry, this isn't going uh, to sound right, or I really messed this up. And I keep saying, them, this is not a place where you say that. This is a place where you try again. This is a place where you are accepted as you are. Because my students will never learn if they're living in a place of shame. The messages of guilt and pain and shame and condemnation will be too great. We don't hear the joy when we're living in shame. We don't grow when we're living in shame. Jesus came to deliver us first and foremost from the shame that the enemy puts upon us. This weekend, I found the book by Tim Keller. One of many of you are aware of Tim Keller and his work. He's a pastor in New York City, one of the country's leading evangelical authors and pastors. And he put it this way, and I loved, I'm going to read a couple of his quotes. He, he put it this way. You glorify something when you find it beautiful for what it is in itself. You glorify something when you find it beautiful for what it is in itself. Its beauty compels you to adore it. You get captured by it. This happened to me with Mozart. I listened to Mozart to get an A in music when I was in college, but I learned to love Mozart. And he says, I go on now and I'll buy whatever I can of Mozart because I find Mozart beautiful. I love Mozart. And when it's a person you find beautiful in that way, you want to serve them unconditionally. When we find God beautiful, when we find God loving and kind and compassionate, just like when we find our parents that way, we want to, we want, we want to follow them. We want to walk with them. We want to do what they ask us to do. Another thing that Keller says is that God did not create us because he needed more glory. God did create us because there was a deficit of glory in the Godhead. God did not create us because there was a deficit of joy in the Godhead. He says, God created us not to get glory or joy, but to give joy. We come to God because he is so full of joy, it's overflowing, and then when we receive it, we give it back to him. The gospel says we, we love him because he first loved us. 
The love of God comes first and our love comes second. The glory of God comes first and our glory to him comes second. The joy of God comes first and our joy comes back to him. But so often we put it the other way. That is not good news. The good news is that we are filled with joy as we come close to God. I love how Keller points out that God didn't need more joy or glory, and so he made people. No, he was dying literally to give joy and glory. He literally died to give joy and glory to his people. You see, that is the gospel of the good news, the good news of joy. Not that you and I must worship God and glorify him and bow down to him, because he's not musting any of us to do that. It's not the way he operates. It's a free choice of ours. He's inviting us to experience his joy and out of that to worship and glorify him. C.S. Lewis had an experience in what he calls his conversion to joy. He calls it surprised by joy. C.S. Lewis was very cognitive and he was struggling with who God was and he, he kept coming up with logic, trying to get log, find logical arguments. He didn't want to be a follower of Jesus. He kept rejecting Jesus. And then he tells his story this way. You must picture me alone in that room, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him, God, who I so earnestly desired not to meet. I love this image of a God who comes to those who do not desire him because he wants no one to perish and he loves every one of us and he wants every one of us to experience joy. He never stops coming to us. And Lewis says, I kept hearing him. He was unrelenting. I kept hearing him coming and I dreaded those steps. And then he says this, that which I greatly feared at last came upon me. In the term of 1929, in the college term of 1925, I gave in, and I admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed. Perhaps I was that night the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. Even a convert who's, who's kicking and screaming, he says. The prodigal son, he says, at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? What he's saying is, who can adequately adore such a God? Who can adequately give glory to such a God who took him in even though he was screaming and resisting God and yet moving towards a God who was moving towards him? He says this, the hardness of God, I love this quote from Lewis, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. As I close, Tim Keller says that the difference between the gospel and other religions is that the gospel is news while the other religions offer advice. The gospel is news, but the other, other religions offer advice. Other religions tell us what we must do to earn our way to God and connect with God, but the gospel tells us that this has already been done. He says this, 
Right there, you can see the difference between Christianity and all other religions, including no religion. The essence of others is advice. Christianity is essentially news. Christianity is completely different. It's joyful news. And then he says this, and this echoed what Mike said to me this week. Tim says, Keller says this, how do you feel when you're given good advice on how to live? Think about that for a moment. How do you feel when you're given good advice on how to live? When someone says, here's the love you ought to have, or here's the integrity you ought to have. And maybe in doing so, they illustrate high moral standards by telling a story of themselves or of some great hero. When you hear it, how do you feel? Inspired, sure. But do you feel the way the listeners who heard those heralds on the fields when Jesus came, do you feel the way they felt when that news was announced? Do you feel like your burdens have fallen off in, that, in those moments? Do you feel as if something great has been done for you and you're not a slave anymore? He says, of course you do not. What you hear in that advice weighs you down because what you hear is you're not good enough. You're not capable enough. You don't have it together enough. This is how you ought to live. He says, that's not the good news of joy. That's not what God came to tell us. The gospel is the good news of joy that God connects to you, not on the basis of what you have done or haven't done, but on the basis that you are his child and he loves you and you bring him joy. That's the good news this morning. And I, I think it's terribly hard for us to understand that. I get the sense that we hear that, but that it does not connect with our souls. Because when it connects with our souls, something is undone within us. We are set free when we understand that we give God joy this morning. We are set free from fear. We are set free from pressure from others. We are set free to experience joy. That is the good news this morning. And I, one of the things I love that Keller also said in his book was this. Sometimes he's referring to Jesus. And he talks about how the father came to him and said, you're my son in whom I am well pleased. And then after that, Jesus was sent by the father into the temptation for 40 days. And Keller said, sometimes it's only in the lowest point of our lives that we hear the words, you are my son and you are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And I think about how often we want to escape pain. I think about even this coming week and how often we want, we want what's going to get give us the least pain or we think will give us the least pain will get us out of trouble and sometimes we just have to stay put where we are we cannot rescue ourselves folks this week or any other week that was never good news the good news is that we are rescued by one who takes joy in you and my prayer for you this morning and I just as I was praying for the sermon I said Lord I can't I can't make this happen in your life I can't make you experience joy. I can't make you experience the freedom. I can't make you experience the love that God has for you. It only happens as you accept and open yourself to God himself. And that's one of the reasons, again, I say over and over again, you, we must have a life with God. We must spend time with God. If we are going to hear that voice of love and joy, it comes as we spend time with God. It comes as we hang out with God. We know that others love us as we spend time with them. It's one of the most difficult things about COVID right now is we're not spending time together. 
It's easy to create stories about are people upset with me or this or that because we're not together. One of the things we know is that God is always with us. Whether we experience joy or not, he's not going to abandon us this week. We'll still be here next week and the week after that and the week after that. And because we're his children, we will be okay. Amen? We will be okay. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you came to bring this news of joy. You came not to demand worship, but to receive worship. You came not to get, but to give. And I just pray in our lives that we would experience this God who continues to woo us, romance us, and draw us to yourself because you are so full of joy and love and compassion for a world that you created, a world that went astray, but the world that you want back so badly. Thank you, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And just do in us what only you can do to release us from fear and from doubt, to know the love that passes all other love. A love that St. Paul says is higher and wider and deeper and longer than any love we can ever imagine. A love that will do more than we can ever think or imagine. You are that love, you are that joy, and you are that peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Font song that um, I just love. Um, as a kid, my favorite verse was Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I discovered this song this week, and, or the last week, and I can't stop listening to it. Um, Ethan. like to stand with us as we close out tonight. You're the God. You're the God of this city. You're the King of these people. You're the Lord of this nation. You are 
You're the light in the darkness. You're the hope to the hopeless. You're the peace to the restless. You are. There is no one like our God. There is no one like you, God. Greater things have yet to come, and greater things are still to be done in this city. Greater things have yet to come, and greater things are still to be done in this city. Greater things have yet to come. Greater things are still to be done here. You're the Lord of creation. You're the creator of all things. You're the king above all kings. You are. You're the strength in the weakness. You're the love to the broken. You're the joy in the sadness. You are. There is no one like our God. There is no one like you, God. Greater things have yet to come, and greater things are still to be done in this city. Greater things have yet to come, and greater things are still to be done in this city. Greater things have yet to come, and greater things are still to be done here. The name of that song is uh, Yet Not I, But Through Christ. Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. It's by City of Light. I'll send it out with a weekly email this week. But it's by City of Light, Yet Not I, But Christ Through, but through Christ in Me. Uh, as I was listening to David Nashley, thank you David Nashley for that song, I was, felt like the Lord said to me, the one thing that everyone shares in this room, no matter whether you're Republican or Democrat or independent or not politically affiliated, one thing we share is fear. But that's the work of the enemy. As the people of God, what we share is joy. The one thing that we have more in common than anything else this morning is joy. It's the lie of the enemy to think that what we share is fear. Because the perfect love of God, no matter where you are, has cast out all fear. Amen? We are the people of God. What we share together this morning, more than anything else, is his joy. Jesus, we are here this morning because we are people of the good news of joy. And so that no matter where we're at in our political affiliation or not a politically affiliated, 
We share joy above all else because most of all, we are the children of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day we will stand before you and give, give back to you in ways that we can't even begin to think of now, the joy that you've given to us. In that moment before you, we will give you the worship we've never been able to give here. We'll be, able to, we'll be filled with joy unspeakable in that moment. And we thank you that you will embrace us, wrap us in the arms of the Trinity and hold us tight. And we will feel joy and peace and compassion and grace like we have never ever experienced on this earth, but that you are moving us towards. And so I pray that this week joy would override fear. I pray that peace would override fear. I pray that your goodness would override our fear, our awareness of your goodness. That this week we would be people who inspire other people with your joy. That when we hear fear, what we would give back is peace. When we hear fear, what we would give back is joy. When we hear fear, what we give back is assurance that you are good, that you are the King of kings, and we are moving towards a homeland over which you reign and over which you are completely good. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in his peace.